Hello and welcome to Fully Scored, the podcast where the chat is slicker than a freshly oiled valve and the analysis is more on point than a freshly sharpened bandmaster's baton. I'm your host, Matthew Frost. In today's episode, we have a Fully Scored first. The legend that is Derek Kane joins us for an analysis, but of something slightly different to usual. So stick around to hear that later in the podcast. But first, it gives me great pleasure to welcome today's guest, Neil Smith. Neil is a territorial music director for the USA Western Territory and also the staff bandmaster there. Our chat was recorded a couple of months back now, just as the sun was preparing to rise and bake a hot, fresh Californian day. Well, Neil, thank you ever so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure and I'm looking forward to chatting with you over the next short while. So you're coming to us via the magical internet portal that is Zoom, all the way from California. Is that right? That is correct. And uh, Zoom seems to become everyone's best friend. So it's, uh, it's good, right? Absolutely. Well, best friend or worst enemy. One of the two. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, what is the weather like in California at the moment? Uh, well, it's early today, so it's a little cloudy still, but uh, it'll warm up. Um, we'll probably head to 100 degrees, give or take, for the next few days here. It's summertime, so it's hot. Excellent. Sounds very toasty indeed. Now, I believe that recently you've been somewhere not quite as warm up to the state of Alaska. What have you been doing up in Alaska? Oh, uh, I've been up there twice in the last uh, few weeks, and um, it is one of my favorite places to go. Um, the Western Territory here has some stunning uh, locations all the way across it. But um, I first went to support the division when the general was there for his visit when he toured the territory. And then um, uh, the second time, just uh, last or two weeks ago, I think, was for music camp. And uh, I can't remember how many years in a row I've gone up there for music camp, but um, I enjoy it. It's uh, camp is a little rustic. Um, but people are friendly and uh, I just like to go and be useful. So I prefer to go places I can do something and uh, I can I can sit around and chat to anybody all the time, but I'd rather be uh, working. So um, we had uh, 23 kids for camp this year, which is uh, maybe about half of the usual. Uh, we're finding that's a challenge all the way across the territory right now because uh, camp are struggling to find staff and uh, kids are still... Some people are still anxious about being back together. So uh, it was good. It was fun. Um, but yeah, that's why I went up there, one of my favorite places in the territory. Fantastic. And I believe that you've been at other music schools and summer schools as well. That's not the only one. Uh, nope. Uh, I just last week was at uh, the Deloro Music Camp. So the Deloro Division is in uh, like Sacramento uh, area. And uh, uh, they had about 100 kids of theirs. And uh, that was fun. Um, Again, uh, we had some health challenges with some of the kids. You know, there's still lots of people getting sick here and there. But uh, the music director there, Daniel, does a really great job. And I just enjoy the opportunity to go and support and to spend time with their uh, music staff um, who are local music leaders and encouragers at the core. So it's nice to be able to catch up in an informal setting. Fantastic. And now talking about you more personally, were music schools and summer schools a big part of your uh, upbringing? Uh, yeah. Um, I joined the Army when I was 16 as a musician. So prior to that, um, in the Salvation Army, I used to go to music camp. Uh, I'm from Inverness, so I would have gone to the North Scotland uh, Divisional Music School. Um, and then probably um, the Scottish National School at Strathallan for a year or two. Um, and... I'm still in touch with people from at least from the National Music School for Scotland. And uh, one of the folks who was, a, uh, I think she was a staff member there, uh, Yvonne Ferguson, she's coming across to WMI in a couple of weeks. So it's nice to, to, to be able to go, but to, to make connections with people. And um, I think that's what we do well. You can end up anywhere within the Salvation Army world and still see somebody who has a connection or that you would know. So it's good. Was music and music making a big part of your life when you were younger? Was it something you've always been passionate about? I think so. Uh, I probably started to play the piano when I was like six years old. I remember my piano teacher used to wrap me across the knuckles with a ruler. 
Uh, so that's pretty old school, right? You can tell how old I am because that's not uh, that's not a thing anymore, right? But um, and uh, I'd started to. I think my dad actually helped me to to start uh, a brass instrument. I played the trombone uh, for about five minutes, but my arms are too short. And um, you know, lots of people uh, would have would have helped, but I learned uh, a bit more at school. And then uh, when I joined the British Army, uh, you get a chance to make music all over the world and with lots of great people. Fantastic. And let's just chat about something that you mentioned there. You said that you joined the army and we're not talking the Salvation Army, the military army when you were 16. Can you tell us a little bit about why you made that decision and what it was like? <laughs> well, uh, I think uh, initially I applied to join the Royal Marines Band Service, but um, I couldn't see well enough. Uh, they have a pretty strict um, uh, vision policy, or at least they did back then. So I wasn't able to see well enough to join the Marines, but um, I left home when I was nearly 17, actually, and to join the Scott Scars Band and went to, uh, again, you can show how, see how old I am, but um, went to the Guards Depot down in Purbright, did my basic training, went to the Junior Musicians Wing there, went to Neller Hall, and then... Um, joined the, the band of the Scots Guards, and I was in the army for about 14 and a bit years. We also served as medical assistants during the first Gulf War. So there's lots of uh, lots of good memories, and I'm still in touch with lots of uh, the people I serve with uh, via Facebook and things, which is it's fun to see. Some of them are still playing, some of them are not, but uh, it's, it's, it's good. I enjoyed it a lot. So after 14 years service, you made the decision to go and become a divisional music director over in San Diego, I believe quite a change for someone uh, going from a military musician role to a divisional music role across the other side of the world as well. Was that something you always hoped to do or was that a bit of a surprise to yourself in some ways? <laughs> that was uh, that was a major surprise for me. Um, I'd done my time in the army as much as I was going to do. You know, when you hit that 30 age mark, you're fed up with being told to have a haircut every five minutes and do whatever, right? So I was I was done with that. And I had actually left the band uh, in the middle of June, but with no real idea of what I was going to do. And um, I was just kind of looking around for various things. And uh, my predecessor, well, not immediate predecessor, but one prior here in the territory as the music secretary was Ivor Bazanko. And... Uh, Ivor uh, and my wife's parents were were good friends. Um, and Ivor just called one day and said, oh, there's an opening for a divisional music director in San Diego. Would you be interested? And I was like, nah, I don't think so. So we just left it. And then a few, uh, <laughs> I don't even know how long it was, a week later, I called back and said, you know, maybe I would be interested. And um, it was a relatively easy decision in the end. It all went fairly quickly. Um, our children were both born in San Diego, so we didn't have to worry about moving them back in those days. Um, and I really had no idea what a divisional music director does or why it was necessary. Um, but I did that for five years. And if circumstances were to change at any point, I would be quite happy to do it again. Um, it's, it's a good thing. The divisions in our territory who have uh, music directors uh, have lots of good things going. Uh, the, the young people, in fact, adults too, are able to make a connection with those people. And uh, they take an interest, not in just in their Salvation Army lives, but uh, in things that are going on in school, graduations and whatever. So um, I enjoyed it. We've been here almost 25 years. And um, I would never have thought that I would be living just outside Los Angeles doing what I do. That's for sure. So coming across from the Salvation Army in London to San Diego, was there much of a difference in the sort of culture shock, <laughs> or did you feel like you were very much at home? Uh, there's a bit of both, actually. Um, the the Salvation Army is the Salvation Army, so you, you know, the concept is the same. Um, but the operation is quite different. And we kind of, I don't think it was a conscious thing, but... Um, for us to just realize that uh, we just needed to to jump in with both feet and be part of what the Salvation Army is and represents here in the United States. Um, again, the basic fundamentals are the same, but the operation is different. And uh, people people in this country actually are very, very fond of the Salvation Army, mostly as their favorite charity, right? Um, we're fairly well up there. But um, 
it was a bit of a culture shock. We came from the Corps at Staines when we moved here. We were soldiers at the Corps at Staines, which was a, a big Corps and lots going on. And um, lots of Corps here have lots going on, but it's just different. And I think if you if we had come with the idea that we just wanted it to be the same and we wanted people here to do that, um, it might not. I might not be even talking to you right now. Um, but I think adaptability is is the key thing and we can succeed. Sometimes you just have to do it a little differently. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that. It's really interesting to hear. So after serving in that role as divisional music director, you became the territorial music director of the USA Western Territory, a role that you still hold to this day. Can you tell me a little bit about your responsibilities in this role and what day-to-day -day working life looks like for you? <laughs> I don't think there's such a thing as a as a day-to-day -day schedule, right? Everything's different, but um, uh, it's a job I, uh, I like a lot. And uh, I'm not the world's finest musician by any means, but um, I think I have um, enough interest and encourage other people to step up and be uh, participants around the territory. Um, you know, you can't succeed if you don't show up. So... Um, for especially now post, well, almost post pandemic, we just need to figure out um, uh, that we still have a lot to offer. We still have lots of opportunity, but we have to then take that opportunity. I don't think there's any point in figuring out that we still wish we had what we had before, because certainly in our territory, that's not the case. And people just uh, will hopefully realize that we still have a good deal we can offer, but you just have to grab what we now have with both hands and move forward instead of looking over your shoulder. Um, uh, my role really is just as, a, as an encourager. We promote uh, quality music making to support our worship. It's not performance based. It should just be everything we do, whether it's arts, dance, drama, uh, music band, worship team, songsters, whatever it is. Um, if we can do it well um, to share the love of Jesus through that music or those arts, then that's what we need to do and support the congregations that we're part of. Um, as a core bandmaster, also, that's important to me that we um, we make a connection with the congregation and with the people who come to our church. We don't want to be sat there playing silly things that, um, that don't work on a Sunday. And um, I think we're trying, we're, we're doing okay with that, but, um, my role is really as an encourager. Um, there's no day-to-day -day thing, as I said. You just, uh, every day is different. Like today, I'm going to talk with you for a little while, and then um, there's more stuff to get done uh, in preparation for the Western Music Institute. I'm trying to get music ready to send to uh, my next music camp, which is after WMI in Africa. We're trying to clean up from stuff we've done before. Um we're checking our protecting the mission child safety records for people coming to teach and there's there's all kinds of things to do um tonight is band practice at the core and um so i'll i'll head out late this afternoon to go do that um nothing is the same i end up going to the tailor some days with some uniform things and uh you just do what needs to be done on a regular basis but no two days are the same which is probably uh, okay fantastic that's great to hear now, on this podcast so far, we've been very fortunate to hear from people from USA South, USA East and Central Territories. What is it for you that makes the Western Territory the greatest of the ball? Uh, the West is best. That's the that's the uh, whole idea. Commissioner Philip Suarez, who uh, was our territorial commander a few TCs ago, maybe three or four, um, was uh, his favorite thing was the West is the only territory that matters. Um, <laughs> and I'm fairly certain it probably got him in trouble. Um, but uh, it's just uh, all four of the American territories are different. Um, they're in different areas of the country, geographically, etc., and the cultures are different. But uh, I think that this territory, everyone's just very friendly um, and... I know lots of people all the way across the territory, all the way across the country, but uh, I travel a lot, but I prefer to travel in my own territory, which is where I'm supposed to be, and uh, to encourage our people um, and make relationships and friendships with those folks. This is just where I feel I need to be, and uh, the, the folks in this territory make that easy to do because they're great people. Fantastic. It's always great to hear. Now, 
apologies, the next question might be quite a challenging one. We often on this podcast <laughs> look back and share stories, which is absolutely fantastic. But I think it's important as well that we look forward to the future. So yeah. I'd like to know, what is your vision for the music um, in the USA Western Territory going forwards into the future? Well, um, there, are, there are things that I think we should do as, as we support the worship life of our territory at the core, at the centres, wherever we end up. So we would continue to encourage as many people as we can to participate in as many um, uh, diverse kind of options as possible. Uh, we don't have as many bands as we used to. They're smaller, um, but we would still encourage them. We don't have as many songs brigades as we used to. Um, even at my own core, we don't have one currently. But those folks where that's an option can still make a viable contribution. The worship team, those guys do a great job. There's a lot of those across the territory. We're currently in a whole thing where we're trying to encourage our creative arts. We've not done so well at that, but we're trying to, you know, we're trying to make a bit of a focus on dance and drama this year. And then next year, we're going to really dig in and make sure that we're, our worship teams across the territory are supported. Not that they're not, but um, with a focus on that and trying to encourage everybody else. If we can be, well, I think, I think the word is relevant. It doesn't matter what we do, if it's dance, drama, music, art, whatever it is, painting, whatever you want to do, it's all good, an expression of worship. But um, if if that's not relevant to where we're at, then I think that's a challenge. And maybe then if it's not relevant, it doesn't necessarily deserve to work. So I think we would like to encourage as many people as we can to, to use as many diverse options to, uh, to be successful as we support our congregations as we worship together. Fantastic. That's great to hear. Thank you for sharing that. So my next question, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your role as the Western Territory Staff Bandmaster. First of all, how long have you held that role for? 2006 was when the band uh, started. I'm so far the only bandmaster of the Western Territory Stab Band uh, as it stands right now. And um, it's a great ministry opportunity. We don't do an awful lot, but when we do, the band works pretty hard and tries to fly the flag for the army in general, but for the core that we attend at those weekends in, the, in their communities as well, so that we can help keep the army visible. The band comes all the way from across the territory. So we've purposely made it so that it encompasses the territory uh, and not just uh, the easy option if you're in the Los Angeles area. Have you got any highlights or particularly memorable moments from your time with the band so far? I think we've done lots of good things that you could class as a highlight of the ministry that we shared together. Um, we had a great time in uh, Lewiston, Idaho a few years ago, and it's like most people don't even know where that is. Um, but we were in Spokane, which is in the northwest, a little uh, east of Seattle, and then drove down there. And the, the, the reception that the band got from people who had never really seen an army band before was quite, quite spectacular. Um, we had our 10th anniversary celebration here in Long Beach uh, in a few years ago, 2016, I guess, where the, the staff bands from around the, the North American uh, territories came and joined with us. That was a that was a highlight. The chance to share um, in in music making uh, together at a high level. It's important to us that we actually connect with people at the core that we go to, and um, uh, we try and play things that people can relate to. And um, so, I think all of our ministry is a highlight. But there are just there are a couple of things that stand out. The band has toured in the United Kingdom territory uh, a long time ago. Um, which again was was a good a good thing for us to do. Um, I'm not sure how many of those kind of international travel ventures we'll undertake. Um, it's a bit, you know, I haven't served in the British Army and haven't travelled a lot myself. I always prefer to stay home. Um, but I think we have a huge amount of work to do and ministry to share in this territory. So um, for us, wherever we go, um, we love the opportunity to just get together. We always share with the local musicians to have dinner and do a rehearsal if we can with them, just to encourage them. And um, next year we're headed up to Sheridan in Wyoming, which is like miles from anywhere. Um, hopefully nobody will be offended by that. But um, but it's still part of our territory, so it'll be a, a bit of a logistical challenge for us. But we feel that that's an area that we've never been to, and I don't think... Uh, 
musically, it's been paid much attention. So we're going to go and fly the flag in that community because the core officers are doing a great job there. And people love the army. Their board is tremendous. So um, we're going to do what we can to go and help them too. Fantastic. Very exciting indeed. And you're someone that has uh, worn both caps, so to speak. You've also been the um, territorial staff songster leader as well. Could you share some highlights from your time leading that group as well? Uh, there were lots of those. Um, I think that the benefit of of, uh, of singing is that the words are readily communicable, right? You can it, it, you don't have to to share them uh, so people can read them, but you should be able to hear what people are singing. And um, again, with that group, we travelled a lot. Um, we've been up to Canada, uh, across to the UK, um, and again extensively in this territory as well. There's always a couple of songs that when you sing them, it's pretty special for the group as well, hopefully, as people listening. And one of those for us and for me was Bow the Knee, which we used um, at the Royal Albert Hall and on our tour there to be able to use that uh, that song in that setting and have it received uh, so well. I think the, the ability, again, to make connections with people through that music and with that group has been a highlight. But again, I think the most important thing for us is being able to be useful in our own territory and share the love of Jesus through that music. And that leads quite nicely on to my next question. Actually, for you personally, how has your faith affected all of your music making? I think it helps with the approach that I take um, generally, because if I didn't have any faith at all, then it really wouldn't work. Um, you know, when you get into situations where it's really hard and you, you figure out that people would struggle and it's like, well, I don't know how you would deal with that without God in your life. The idea would be that we could share his love through what we do. And I think if I didn't know that love and wasn't aware of that power in my life, it just wouldn't work. We're we're not ashamed of the opportunity to, to do that and to share our faith. Um, and we've been in a few... Uh, schools with the staff band where some of our players are teachers and we're um, we've had the opportunity to go to their schools and uh, we're not ashamed to say that look this is a Christian organization we love the Lord and uh, um, there will be some religious music uh, not shoved down your throat but the opportunity to just share that with people my faith is important to me because Jesus died for me and uh, without that then the opportunity for me to share his love through what I do uh, wouldn't exist, really. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. Now we come on to some quirky quick-fire questions to round things of the interview off. And uh, <laughs> some of these will be perhaps fairly normal questions and some, well, quite the opposite, I hope. The first one, have you got a favourite Salvation Army composer? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I like a lot of people... But I think picking one would be uh, fairly hard. I like um, Ken Downey, Race Dam Allen, Peter Graham, their their music. Uh, and Les Condon, I, I like. Well, the Present Age is one of my favourite pieces. And I often wonder, because I think Les was fairly young when he died, in his 50s, I think. Um, I often wonder what we would have had if he'd lived a bit longer. Because um, I'm, I'm an enthusiast. But I'm not sure if I have a favourite, favourite person. Um I like music that's kind of relevant and just fits at the time. Fantastic. Now, you might have answered my next question, which is going to be, have you got a favourite piece of Salvation Army music? Would it be the present age or are there any other contenders? The present age is up there. Um, I quite often, when the staff band goes anywhere, we sometimes revert to um, Live the World for a Sunday. And, and I like that because the, the, the picture that, you know, the knocking that, that you have to open the door to Jesus from the inside. Um, I, that's a favorite of mine. Um, and that might actually be the all time favorite, uh, although it's fairly old these days, but um, it doesn't have to be new and, and bangled and have a tam tam at the end to be successful. Terrific. <laughs> or coffee. Oh, coffee all the time. And what is your favourite way to have coffee? Oh, well, I'm a regular Starbucks attender, um, but I have an espresso machine and a Keurig machine at home, so uh, I probably should drink less of it. I do like a cup of tea, but, um, yes, I often have a, a, on my way to work, which takes about an hour, I often stop at Starbucks on the way so I can drink coffee in the quiet on the way here. 
So here's a hypothetical question. Imagine in your house you've suddenly noticed a new door that you've never spotted before. And when you go through it, it teleports you to anywhere in the world that you want to go. Where would you go first? <laughs> My, uh, I don't know, actually. Um, I do like to spend time in San Diego, which is one of my favorite places. Or Alaska is pretty close after that. So somewhere like that, somewhere that um, somewhere that I enjoy being. I'm not sure about somewhere I've never been before. Excellent. And a second part to that question, would you try and turn that door into a commercial success or just keep the secret for you? Oh, low-key secret for me, that's for sure. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Next question. If you got a pet horse, what would you name it? I have no idea. Um, I would never get a pet horse because I don't, um, I'd like animals, but I would never have any. Um, uh, Fred, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, sounds like a good horse's name. <laughs> what sport would you say you're best at? Oh, none. You got a favourite um, to watch? Not really. I enjoy watching the Olympics when it's on TV, things like that. Lots of people doing lots of different things, but... Um, I'm not, yeah, I'm not really a sporty guy. I'll watch it if it's on, but I would never opt to buy a ticket to go to something. That makes two of us. <laughs> I'm a Scotsman, so I'm cheap too, so. <laughs> <laughs> and a uh, final question that really puts the quirky into quirky quickfire questions. If you opened a brass band themed pizzeria and you had to name your signature pizza after a band piece, what would you call it and what would the toppings be? I don't know. Uh, let's see. Uh, maybe uh, there's a there's a favorite pizza place I go to in Anchorage, which has a pizza called the Avalanche. But um, maybe it would be. I do like Peter's March, the Ambassadors. Maybe it would be the Ambassador Pizza, but it would have to have um, green pepper, uh, probably some ham, maybe a little pepperoni. Uh, a bit of garlic and maybe the controversial one it might need a little bit of pineapple just to kind of sweeten it up but people are pretty divided on pineapple on pizza so I don't want to lose any money if I had to open the place right but um, uh, yeah I think that would probably do only a little pepper on it though. I don't really like that much oh, fair enough thank you very much and you'll be relieved to know that brings us to the end of those quirky quickfire questions. And uh, I think all that's left for me today is thank you so much for giving up your time to speak to me today. It's been a real pleasure. No problem. Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you, Neil, for your time and your words. Thank you for the insight into your life and work for the Salvation Army over in the West USA. I'm told that Neil's Pizzeria will be opening soon, so you can get your fresh Ambassador Pizza very shortly. Now, it's time to welcome Derek Kane back to Fully Scored, as we chat in the newly refurbished Bexley Heathcore in the south of London. Well, thank you Derek for joining us once again. Now we're going to be doing a Fully Scored first now. We're going to be doing an analysis, but of a Euphonium solo. Right. And uh, this solo was specifically written for yourself by Norman Bearcroft. And it is, of course, The Better World. <laughs> so, can we talk about the history of it? Where did this piece come about? Uh, what was the initial spark that growed into The Better World? Well, uh, The Better World was written for an occasion, as were many solos. Um, it was written for a 1978 International Congress and uh, the year before had been a Silver Jubilee concert at the Royal Albert Hall and I had played The Conqueror and that, that piece and uh, Norman said to me he said oh, I'd like to feature you during the International Congress uh, next year I said okay um, he said you know what are you going to play kind of thing I said well I don't know I'll have a look he said well I'm asking that because Maybe we'll come up with something, something new. I said, what? You mean you're going to write something? <laughs> he said, yeah, no, I want to do a new one. I said, okay. So that was the initial spark for the better world. So we knew the occasion. We knew it was the Congress. We knew it was a big international audience. 
Uh, we knew it was a staff band, we knew there was two other staff bands there, we knew it was going to be a full alcohol. Uh, so I went down to, to his house uh, at that time, just outside Bournemouth, where he lived, and we started talking about his ideas, he spoke about a better world, um, told me about the tunes. Because he wrote, in a lot of his music, he, he speaks of uh, things, you know, uh, he speaks about the, the, the better world in other, other pieces, um, in his thematic material. Um, he said, yeah, I've got an idea, because he, he liked using old, if you like, army songs. He said, so I've got this tune, There Is A Better World. I said, okay. So we played it, we tried it in one or two different keys. Uh, and originally, we were going, he was going with an A major key. He said, "No, I'm really, I'm really fond of A flat. He, he writes in A flat a lot, mm. especially with slower stuff. He, he, he likes writing in A flat." Mm. Much warmer. Mm. Sounds interesting, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. And that's why that was that was a, a change that was made fairly early on, from that A major brightness to the much more roundness of the A flat uh, major key. And then we looked at some. Cadenza material, he said, oh, I'll just play me some things, you know, so I played some stuff, you know, and he said, oh, okay, we'll, we'll shape that into a cadenza, and it kind of went like that, and we looked at the ending, he said, it'll be a fuzzy ending, big finish, you know, crowd, you know, and the middle movement, though, he said, I'm not sure, I've got one or two ideas, uh, he firstly spoke about the Calvary track, which was his male voice arrangement of I Know Thee Who Thou Art, which was very popular at the time with, with, with bands, and I think published later for songsters. And then he said, no, I'm not sure. And then he came up with this one, uh, Heavenly Mansions for the Moon and Movement. Lovely tune. So there is a little Albert Hall link. He said it was performed as a male voice song way, way back by the German staff band on a visit to London. And they sang this song because of the tune is, is known in Germany. And they sang this song, uh, Heavenly Mansions, there's a homely duck and glory. Uh, it's a song, I'm going, I'm going to use that. And he I didn't know the tune at the time, so he, he played the tune for me and we played around with it. So that was, the, that was the beginnings of the actual writing of The Better World. Fantastic. So... We're going to talk about a little bit more about the piece and perhaps some ideas uh, as a soloist looking at this you might be aware of and uh, you can demonstrate some little bits as well, your interpretation. So, be a good place to start at the beginning, wouldn't it? And a very um, challenging introduction straight into the action, whizzing up to a top E flat yeah, within yes, bars. Yeah, straight in. And, you know, your fourth bar, you've got that top E flat to deal with. Hmm. Um, in, a, in a typical Beercroft fashion. But one that grabbed the listener straight away. You know, a very short introduction from the band, two bars. And then you phone him, you're in. No time to get nervous. <laughs> no, you know, not the... Mozart 48 bars before the <laughs> clarinet comes in or whatever um, but he went straight in two bars and you're in and then into the tune uh, a really bright tune that can be treated a couple of ways uh, and over the years I've probably played it maybe slightly different I've played it more in a detached style and I've played it in a maybe slightly more singing style cantabile style the good thing about it is you, either it, either's fine, uh, in my opinion. And that's in a very cantabile mm. style, but suits the solo. 
but you could also put a, a slightly pointed approach. I probably used to play the. I, I quite like the cantabile version. It gives fuller sounds and all like that uh, for the for the melody. You've got some interesting band work going on here as well. This cascading cornet thing at uh, letter B is a challenge for bands. You know, that, that's, that's harder than it looks. These descending triplets. Behind the soloist is a, is a challenging thing. And then he takes us into our first uh, variation. And again, it's typical Beercroft treatment. Um, again, you get the high E flats, get the high Ds, you know, plenty of them, mm. plenty going on. Uh, leading into an early cadenza, um, which isn't an unusual Beercroft thing. Uh, if I'm right, he also put an early cadenza in Song of Exhortation as an early cadenza. Whereas a lot of composers put a late cadenza. Mm. Uh, Eric Lysden, more of, most of his cadenzas, some early on, but most of them later on. Um, but uh, Bearcroft liked that early showy soloist cadenza. Mm. And there's certainly plenty to do and plenty to work at. And then a little reprise of the variation to end that uh, first section. And there are any things that, uh, for a performer playing this solo would facilitate uh, with learning some of the intricacies technically that you'd recommend? Yeah, I mean, the opening is one. Uh, the variation demands one or two little things. You've got the semi-quiver patterns. Uh, you've got the little triple tongue thing. There's not a lot of triple tongue written for euphonium solos. In fact, I've changed a couple over the years to, a, to adapt a first variation triplet section into a triple tongue section. For example, Norman Bicross Harbour Light. I ended up playing with Snap Band as a triple tongue section. One, we didn't have any. It's a little bit in We Lost Your Hallelujah. But I did not many whole variations for triple tongue. So I've created, I've created my own along the way. Um, high register is always a thing for Norman Bicross, whether you're playing his band work or solo work. And the same with this. Uh, and we can... Hopefully, demonstrate that. That's what you need for the solo. Mm. To play these, you know, you need to know you've got a high register uh, available to you. Um, some, some little runs to sort out and some clarity to get in, in some of the bars. Mm. So, technical, but not over technical for the players that should be playing Better World. So the cadenza at section F. Yeah, a few, a few technical aspects to deal with. Mm. Um, you've got the beginning. Then we go into this sequence. Run of semiquavers that happens 12 times on an accelerando. So you've got to negotiate that uh, runoff semiquavers with a ch for me for a change of alternate fingers. So I start off with a G on open and then I change it to one and three for the faster bit. Uh, okay, then there's a bit on the cadenza that's marked rapidamente, so get quicker. Uh, it's probably a bit that I've never so I've never really played it all rapid. I tend to uh, play it a bit slower. It's rapid enough, mm. but I don't go straight through really. And I would do it that way for clarity. So then we get to the next section, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the melody, Heavenly Mansions uh, I. What are some of the considerations, again, as a performer that you would take um, expression and phrasing and just find the beauty in the tune. 
there's one change. Uh, I think I might have done it for one recording. But on the copy, and probably the proper tune. I've normally not played the dotted rhythm the second time. one of these little differences that happens that you wouldn't notice unless you're reading the music uh, and I do that on two or three occasions through this movement I take the dot away and play two quavers hmm. but um, my decision that was not composers <laughs> but I think that's part of a soloist I think you know I'm not disturbing the music in any way I'm not changing in any great detail it's just the way I just the way I, pl- I saw it and played it so then at section J, you turn into more of a counter-melody, soaring around from the lows and the high, uh, extreme to range on the euphonium. Well, perhaps maybe not that extreme. But uh, again, what would you be looking for when performing this section? Yeah, nice, nice connection between your notes. Lovely connection right through these moving arpeggios, and so it's, it's still beautiful. And you're not hearing the gaps, you're connecting it all up. Moving on to this next section of K, which I used to love playing this section. Again, it's not in the copy, but you know, you've got to find a bit of heart in this music. And some people would probably be disappointed if I didn't make that not longer now <laughs> over the years hearing it. <laughs> Two bars long. One person did ask me about it once. I said, Oh, are you going to extend that note on that? So, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, people do notice these things. Yeah. Interesting what people notice. They don't say, Oh, it's a lovely solo. They say, Oh, are you going to play that long semiquiver? <laughs> <laughs> in the better world I said well yes I guess I better <laughs> gotta keep the fans happy <laughs> <laughs> so once again we come out of that into some more well fast and intricate music at section M and then even more fast and intri- intricate at section N <laughs> Yeah, M over the years, uh, over the years playing with Snap Band, M and N became very much more or less the same thing. On the copy, 138 to 160. I think eventually, and that didn't happen, we just played the piece. Uh, when I used to practice this, I used to practice it like this, letter N. I can hear every note. Hmm. Okay. And it's an interesting way to practice and not just play the... What it does, it develops your sense of moving from one note to another hearing what, uh, what you're playing. And that just whizzes on right through towards uh, the end of the piece. We get a restatement of a bit of the tune, that letter Q. And, and just that little fragment for euphonia, but it's quite exciting. Again, quite pointy on that one. But then maybe with the next phrase. So you get nice contrast between two phrases. You don't have to play every phrase the same. Right on the very end, this mark, you've got the option of the top E flat or the C. You're not really going to play the C, really. Uh, I guess. Uh, most of my earlier performances, 
uh, did finish on the C going up to the E flat. Hmm. I think I might have a recorded version where I go straight on. Yeah, I think maybe in a later recording I go straight up to that E flat. So there's different little decisions to make and some technical stuff to sort out, but a great, great solo. Mm. Exciting. And for the player, everything in it, cadenza, variation, melody, for the listener, the same. Exciting. You know, it's got every bit of stuff that you'd want to hear in the solo. Mm. Absolutely. Just, uh, just, just fantastic. But, uh, and plenty for the solos to sort out. There's still technical challenges. Uh, none most on that run down at the end by tempo that's how it's done that's what you're aiming for fantastic <laughs> masterfully played as well really is lovely to hear you playing well once again terrific thank you very much yeah. and thank you very much for that sort of little insight into the piece no, it's, been, it's been a pleasure how it came about and uh, for your lovely episodes as well very nice thank you <laughs> I don't know about you, but I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Derek may now be retired from playing with the ISB, but he certainly hasn't lost the magic. Thank you very much, Derek, for your time and your words and insight there. Now it's time for our third Scotsman of the episode, although this one was still living in the land of kilts and haggis until he took the long ferry to Arid Island. Please welcome Chris Shanks to Fully Scored. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Shanks coming to us all the way from Scotland. Chris, how are you doing? I'm not too bad, thank you. How are you? Excellent. Not too bad. Thank you for joining us on Arid Island Albums. We'll find out what your album of choice is shortly. And just to pre-warn you, uh, if it is one hour of relaxing bagpipe sounds, then uh, we will be leaving you on the <laughs> island. <laughs> First of all, I thought it would be good to get to know you a little bit. I've uh, known you for many years, and you're a very fine euphonium player, principal uh, euphonium of the Bells Hill Salvation Army Band, and also part of the Household Troops Band. But you're also involved quite heavily in the wider Scottish brass band movement. Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, yeah, so for uh, many years uh, I've competed. Um, it all started from a go and help a band at a regional uh, competition for three months, and, well, that was way back in 2006, so it's it's kind of, it gripped me right away. So I'm currently a euphonium player at the Whitburn Band, uh, as well as um, conducting various ensembles, you know, round about uh, the, the country I have done. Um, although uh, I currently uh, reside at the Reg Vardy Band in the north of England, um, which was a great opportunity to take. Um, and... Yeah, I've just got a real happy medium of your know, playing and uh, conducting at you know competing level, but also you know doing uh, quite a, a substantial amount of workshops with my my best in college, Scott, um, you know, and trying to encourage youth you know to take up and uh, you know try and get them you know empowered into the kind of contesting scene. Fantastic, and uh, that sounds like a very busy life, and I know you're a very busy man, but it doesn't <laughs> stop there. Can you tell us about what your day job is? Yeah, so. Uh, for my sins, my day job as a music teacher, so I'm a faculty head of music and drama in uh, the northwest of Glasgow. I love my job um, and it, it really is a great challenge and one that I'm really enjoying despite you know starting it just before COVID hit. Um, and although there is a, the future of having a lot of bagpipes, unfortunately, uh, due to a project uh, that I, I'm working on, um, it's still good that you know there's lots of kids making music and that that's all that matters to me. Fantastic. We wish you continued success in that venture. I believe you're quite a fan also of the typical Scottish game of rugby. Very much so. Really, when I was at school, I had um, quite a challenge where um, my, my rugby got quite serious. 
um, you know, playing a lot of districts, a lot of travel through to Edinburgh um, of a weekend as well. Um, and, you know, thankful to my dad that he kept me in the straight and narrow of having the happy medium between the army um, at that stage, because I could have quite easily have just, you know, gone, right, rugby, that's it. Um, and even up to, you know, the last kind of few weeks of school, there was still that opportunity in the table. Um, but my, my fix so to speak for rugby was actually I get to coach it at schools I haven't done it in my current school um, and hopefully they don't hear this broadcast excellent fantastic stuff that's brilliant and that brings us on to the all-important question if you were stranded on an arid and deserted island in the middle of nowhere and could take one album with you what would that album be and why this was so so difficult uh, <laughs> and you, you know me well enough that I have quite a wide range of, you know, music um, that I listen to. Um, and to pick one album, I mean, I, I think I've gone through about 20, at least, that I narrowed down. Um, but to get an all-encompassing album that I thought I'm never going to grow tired of, um, I went with uh, a CD that really struck me the first time I heard it. Um, and... Uh, it actually got me thinking, I want to sound like that or try and emulate that sound. Um, and it's really where my two worlds kind of collide into one, um, where it's Essays for Brass, Volume 1, uh, with the Yorkshire Building Society. Um, and it's just so much music that's spoken to me over the years, um, both as a player, as a conductor, um, but also how as a band uh, as well, the sound they had was just outrageous with allied by, you know, a, a stable of incredible souls. But it actually got me thinking of banding, you know, where um, there isn't a weak player in that band at all, is there? You know, um, and it just shows you what can be, you know, made possible, like, you know, when you have a band of that. So that kind of got me that way of thinking as an individual, you know, as a player, I want to be the best I can be and still continue to be, but also thinking of, oh, imagine having that buzz of standing in front of that. So it really hit a trigger point for me um, as, a, as a, a young, avid bando um, all those years ago. So I've gone for essays uh, for Brass Volume 1. Excellent. A superb choice. And uh, have you got a favourite track or even a couple of highlights from the album? Um, highlights for me, one of, I mean, well, they're all a highlight. Uh, believe it or not, but I would say My Strength, My Tower, for example, um, and it's a piece that, um, kind of speaking of army roots now, um, you know, for myself to be able to play with my core band at Symphony Sounds, it was nice to actually, you know, be able to be in that main stage with my core band, you know, uh, who, you know, I, I love dearly, and uh, getting to play a piece of music like that, um, and actually seeing the buzz that they had by being able to play that, um, you know, really, you know, resign, you know, still, even to this day, you know, really is, you know, such an important memory, but also just getting to play that arabesque in the middle, you know, it's one of the most iconic, you know, iconic youth duets there is, and I know Alex and I certainly really enjoyed, you know, playing that on the day. Um, although others were probably petrified, we we just loved it, <laughs> you know. Um, so for me, that that's a highlight um, as a memory. But as just sheer playing, that was when I went Morgan Griffith sound. You know, uh, it's just class, <laughs> you know, um, as a euphonium player. Um, but the fact that it was written in 1953, it just sounds so fresh, you know. Um, for me, so no, um, I would say my strength, my tour is a, a particular highlight. Um, after that. I've actually gone with Light of the World um, and purely because it doesn't matter what band I've played or conducted that with, it, it's still an incredible six and a half you know, minute message. Um, whether it be uh, playing at the core band or troops um, or you know, we played it when I was at the co-op before Whitburn, uh, we played it a lot in concerts um, and actually probably was one of the as a music performance was one of the finest music performances, you know, uh, that I, I played that in a, a, in a, a concert. Um, but also it's a hymn tune that I use quite a lot, you know, to warm up bands. Uh, and it's it's always a kind of continual me, you know, reminder for myself. Um, but it's actually the reading of it as well. Uh, uh, it really did capture the whole 
essence of the the message, you know, of that. You know, Jesus, thou art standing outside the fast closed door. You know, it, it, I just felt that it really it touched me quite uh, every time that I listened to it. Fantastic. Thank you ever so much, Chris, for your time. And I'm pleased to say I understood at least 25% of what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> just have the subtitles or a translator. <laughs> Will do. Thank you again, Chris. Thanks, Chris. What a great choice. I'm delighted to say that since recording that as well, Chris has now become a father. So congratulations to yourself and Emma. Now... It's time to feel the fear, taste the tension, and smell the whiff of worry. This is Band Mastermind. Well, Neil, welcome back to Fully Schooled. It's now time to put you to the test in Band Mastermind. Now, for our listeners that may be listening for the first time today, I'll just explain what the rules are. You'll have one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many band trivia questions correctly as you can. If you don't know the answer, you can always say pass, and we'll go back through the answers of any that you don't get at the end, or you'll get them all right. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> On a scale of one to ten, how nervous are you feeling right now? Oh, if ten's the worst, then ten. Okay. Okay, well... Neil Smith, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? Let's do it. Excellent. Your time starts now. How many times has the March Christmas Joy appeared in different series, journals and books? Uh, three times. Good guess, but incorrect, I'm afraid. In what year did the Triumph series begin? No idea. OK, we'll move on. Who wrote the March? Chalk Farm number two. Oh, Edward Gregson. Correct. In what year was the most recent Salvation Army tune book released? Uh, 2015 or 16. 15. Go for? 15? You are correct. The Salvation Army started making its own range of brass instruments in 1889, but in what year did manufacturing cease? Oh, 1950-something. Incorrect, I'm afraid. <laughs> At which court did Sir Dean Goffin lead his very first band practice in his his position as National Bandmaster in the UK? Uh, Chalk Farm. Good guess, but not quite. Which Salvationist wrote the piece for the 1988 British National Brass Band Championship? Uh, Eric Ball. Not quite. What was the first piece to be labelled a festival march called? No idea. Crusaders? Good guess. Tricky one, that one. Name the town in Surrey, England, where Beatle George Harrison lived and Ray Steadman Allen also wrote a tune of the same name. Oh, uh, um, uh, uh, pass. Okay, (laughs) your time is up there, um, so we'll have to stop. I'll just go through the answers of the ones that you didn't quite get correctly. So... I asked you, first of all, how many times the March Christmas Joy has appeared in different series, journals and books? It's actually seven times. It's appeared in the American Band Journal, Triumph Series, favourite book number two, The Green Book, Green uh, Christmas Music, also Green Book, Sounds of Christmas, Judd Street Collection and The Christmas Collection. So, quick on that one. <laughs> uh, the year the Triumph Series began was 1921. The year that the Salvation Army ceased making its own range of brass instruments was 1972. And the corps at which Dean Goffin led his first band practice as National Bandmaster was Birmingham Citadel. In 1988, uh, the British National Test Piece was written by Ray Stedman Allen and it was Seascapes. Now, here's a a tricky one indeed. The first piece to be labelled as a festival march was actually called the Festival March by Richard Slater. And the last one, which I think could have been on the tip of your tongue, uh, was the name of the town in Surrey, England, where Beatle George Harrison lived and Ray Stemmen Allen also wrote a tune of the same name. It's Eacher. Yeah, I knew it was an E something. <laughs> there we go. So that gives you a total of two correct, which for Band Mastermind is absolutely average. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you once again, Neil, for joining us with good humour and for your words. My pleasure. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for in this episode. Good news, though. Coming very shortly indeed, we have another special bonus episode. 
be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter to keep up to date with that and all the latest fully scored news and sometimes even little snippets of bonus footage. Just before we go, a few words of thanks. Thank you to our wonderful guests, Neil, Derek and Chris. Thanks for giving up your valuable time to chat. Really do appreciate it. Thank you also to our producer, Simon Gash, for being a metaphorical granny, knitting all the chat together like a warm woolly blanket. Thank you to Wobplay for hosting our podcast and creating a playlist to complement this episode. You can listen for free by searching for Wobplay. Thank you also to the primitive single-cell organisms that are the band nerds for your band trivia and expertise. And last but not least, thank you to you for listening. You've been fully fantastic. Until next time, goodbye and God bless. (laughs) 